another episode of Hazmatician Chronicles. I'm your host, Rob. It's been a little while since I've recorded the Hazmatician Chronicle podcast. The last episode we did was on tularemia, and that was a little bit of a history lesson and an overview of that particular bioterrorism agent. So if you haven't listened to that episode, check out our FDU podcast website or go to Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, any of the outlets, iTunes, iHeartRadio. We're all posted on there with our podcast episodes. So definitely check that one out. That was that was a really good episode. I really enjoyed researching that one and talking about the biological agent aspect of it and why it's such a potent type weaponized agent that can be used. This is something that you should really know and understand because it's not just tularemia as a bioterrorism agent, but it's the other ones too, anthrax, Ebola, any hemorrhagic fevers such as Marburg, anything like along those lines. So uh, just definitely check that one out if you haven't already. But today we're going to be going into a little bit of a case study. We're going to be going into a line of duty death to a firefighter who was on the hazardous materials team for his department. And it's a tragic event that occurred. If anything, we're going to, we're going to look at it, we're going to talk about it, and the chemical involved, and hopefully we can learn from it as well. So this situation is titled for the line of duty death. Confined space incident kills two workers, company employee, and rescuing firefighter. So... With that said, this incident occurred on November 15th, 1984, and one firefighter was killed in the explosion that occurred, along with multiple firefighters that were near the container that exploded. They were injured severely, and the worker for the company where the storage container was ended up dying as well. So we're going to give a little synopsis of the event that occurred and what led up to this tragic incident. So this incident occurred in Phoenix, Arizona, and it was at a bulk petroleum storage facility. And the tank that exploded was a toluene tank. Toluene, we're going to go into a lot more detail towards the end of this episode of the chemical formula, the flammability, the molecular weight, things like that. And then another thing I do too is I'll post the chemical bulletin that I created on this particular chemical on our Facebook page, and that will be on our FDU podcast Facebook page, and also our company that we own, which is Hazmat and Advanced Training Solutions, will post it on that Facebook page as well. So you'll have a lot of different references, and you can also print this chemical bulletin out. That's why we do these, and basically do tabletop training with your crew at your station. And it can take anywhere from just 10 minutes, just reading over the bulletin and just talking about it, to 30 minutes, or actually taking even further the training and actually making an actual scenario out back of your station and how you would handle it. So the sky's the limit with how in-depth you want to go. Getting back to the uh, events here, petroleum storage facility, it's a toluene tank, and the tank was 10 feet wide and 20 feet tall. The point of this was the owner realized that this particular tank with the toluene in it had to be drained and cleaned, but the only access point was from the very top of the tank. And the top access point only had a 16-inch diameter hole to go through for workers or for whatever they were going to be doing. So obviously, that's not big enough to get anybody in there, especially with proper respiratory protection, aka an SCBA. The owner of this facility in this tank said, I need to get a bottom port access to the bottom of the tank, and that has to be installed. But the contractor who came out and did a site survey basically said, yeah, not a problem. We'll do that. But... I need the uh, tank to be completely cleared out of any of the contents of the chemical, any kind of sludge that might be in the bottom of it, and well ventilated before he starts cutting into it and to install the access portal at the bottom of the tank, which is understandable because we're dealing with a confined space one with 
flammable atmosphere because of the vapors. So obviously the facility owner for this container had to get some workers to check into it, get ready to start cleaning it, and get it prepared for the contractor to come in. Leading up to this, the day of the incident, the supervisor and an unskilled laborer who in this NIOS report for the line of duty death was confirmed to be a San Salvadorian immigrant, and it was his first day back on the job at this particular storage facility for petroleum because he was off at another job site for two months prior. So this is his first day back, and he's the worker that's going to be, you know, help cleaning it out to get it ready for the contractor to come in and do this access portal installment. So they, the supervisor and this laborer were able to get the tank to its lowest level possible, but it still had about two to three inches of sludge on the bottom, plus toluene vapors in the bottom as well. So already right there, it's probably oxygen deficient. It's flammable at that point. And we're dealing with a 10 by 20 bulk storage uh, container. With that said, they obviously were thinking, okay, it's confined space. There's going to be some issues with the atmosphere and just going down there and breathing normal. What they did was they went to a local store in town and rented an SCBA for the worker that was going to go into the tank from the top access port to begin doing the final clean out. So the supervisor and the laborer discussed how they were going to do it. They couldn't get a ladder in because the top access point was only 16 inches wide. It was determined that they were going to tie a rope to one of the pipes up on the very top of the tank and lower the worker in and then lower the SCBA in for the worker to put on right away. Well, I guess the day of the entry into the tank itself, the worker is said to have been sitting on the edge and the supervisor turned to grab the SCBA and then he turns around and the worker had already descended into the tank on the rope without the SCBA. The supervisor is reported of seeing the worker at the bottom of the tank standing there and kind of mumbling which I'm assuming he's becoming disoriented because of the vapors and the oxygen-deficient environment that he went into. Tried to yell down to him to tell the worker to climb back up the rope and come out to get the SCBA on. The laborer in the tank was not listening, and then the supervisor was reported saying that he saw the worker fall to his knees and then to his back, still mumbling, not making any sense. So at this point, the toluene vapors and abundance of the vapors in that tank at the bottom are now starting to affect this laborer who's inside. So at that point, the supervisor realized that he can't get the attention of the uh, worker. So he contacted his supervisor and told them to call the fire department. So the fire department responded, full response with the hazardous materials response because of the information that was relayed of it being a bulk storage facility with chemicals there. So obviously that was a good call to get the hazmat team going on this one. What occurred next is when the fire department got there, and decided to go with an instant action plan of this is going to be a rescue effort, not a hazardous materials effort. Because I guess they still figured that the worker was still alive inside. Now they began coming up with a plan of to get access to the bottom of the tank from the outside. They were going to cut into it with a rotary saw. And obviously we know as firefighters that when we use a K-12 saw or anything like that, it creates an abundance of sparks. Especially when you're trying to cut through a quarter inch thick steel side panel of a storage facility. That was the, the deal that they came up with, the fire department. And they knew that because they were dealing with toluene, that's a highly flammable chemical. They knew that they had to be in full protective gear, SCBA on, because of the chance of explosion occurring. So good call on that part. The other thing they did too was they began to have a hose line directed at the actual exterior cutting site. And they also had two firefighters up top on the tank spraying water on the inside of the tank where the cuts were being made. So they had an exterior hose line directing 
on there to kind of reduce the sparks being created by the saw. And they also had a hose line up top spring in the inside of the tank where the cut was being made to, again, reduce the amount of sparks that might occur inside the tank and also to cool the metal down too, because obviously we're dealing with a flammable chemical here. They decided to do two vertical cuts, which were completed. And while they were making the horizontal cut, they were about 95% done with that horizontal cut when the explosion occurred. But why did it occur? Because at some point, the two firefighters up top with the hose line spraying to the inside of the storage tank were told to stop flowing water and come down off the tank. At this point, there's no water flowing from the top of the tank to the inside where the cut's being made. The other thing, too, is the firefighters on the exterior of the tank that were spraying water on the cut as well to reduce the sparks realized that the ground was catching on fire and some of the flammable liquid that was coming out of the bottom of the tank, the sludge and whatnot, was catching on fire at the feet of the firefighter that was making the cut with the saw. So they took the hose line and the nozzle off of the actual storage container and directed it to the ground to put out the fire. And at that point, when the firefighter with the saw was making the horizontal cut, he was about 95% complete with that cut when the explosion occurred. So whether it was because the hose lines were taken away off the cut and it allowed the sparks and that dynamic atmosphere, the flammable atmosphere from inside the tank with that chemical to just get that proper mixture of oxygen coming in through the uh, three cuts that were being made. And that range was just perfect storm kind of thing and the explosion occurred. The line of duty death of the firefighter was the firefighter who was making the cut because he was directly in front of the container making the cut. He wasn't off to the side or anything. And that was one of the things they found with the investigation is, and they recommended that have a procedure for the fire department of if you're making a cut like that, don't stand directly in front of the object you're cutting, but more off to the side if you're able to. So that was one thing that the NIOSH report had listed here. The other thing too is when that explosion occurred and from what they found in the investigation, that position of that firefighter, that firefighter unfortunately was killed instantly from the explosion. And then the other ones nearby were, were severely injured as well. At that point too, the NIOSH investigators realized and what they documented is that the worker at the time of the explosion that they were trying to rescue was already determined to be deceased before the explosion occurred, before really probably any of the um, decision was made to cut the tank as well, because the fumes and the oxygen deficient environment, the worker probably succumbed to the inhalation hazard way before any of this was made and the explosion occurred, obviously. So that's what the NIOSH uh, investigators had found too. Obviously, this was a horrible situation, and it just kind of was like a snowball effect of one thing going wrong after another. And unfortunately, that's that's usually what occurs is one thing happens, and it leads to the next thing, and you get this really, really horrible ripple effect that leads to people being hurt and people being killed. With that said, we're going to talk about the toluene chemical itself. Now, toluene has the uh, chemical formula of C7H8. It is a clear, colorless liquid with a distinctive smell. But it's used as a solvent. It occurs naturally in crude oil, this particular chemical, and also in the toluene tree. Toluene is produced, and among other fuels too, involving crude oil. But it is added to gasoline to improve the octane rating. Also, it's used to produce benzene as well. And it's also used as a solvent in paints, coatings, synthetic fabrics, fragrances, any adhesives, inks, you name it. But another thing too, is it's used heavily in pharmaceuticals, plastic bottles, polyurethanes, things like that. And it's also synthesis of trinitrotoluene, TNT. So obviously right there, it's being used as an explosive. 
Now, when exposure occurs to somebody with toluene, obviously it's going to affect the breathing, and it can be due to the indoor or outdoor ambient air. It doesn't matter, especially depending on the amount. So obviously indoors, it's going to be, or in a confined facility or building or container, like in this NIOSH report we just talked about, obviously it's going to be higher concentration, especially if there's no ventilation ports for it to kind of escape out. Outdoors, depending on the concentration that's being released in the ambient air, outdoors of a structure or a container or whatnot, it's got to be a lot as well, but it can still affect you even being outside with like wind and, and whatnot, kind of changing the dynamic of that vapor cloud. What it affects initially, and hence probably when the reports from the supervisor mentioned that the worker was already at the bottom of the tank and mumbling and he couldn't get his attention. And at some point the worker did fall to his knees and then to his back and was still mumbling. Well, toluene fumes affect your central, central nervous system. That's the target organ of your body when you're exposed to this type of chemical. The other part of it too, the symptoms that you may see people exhibiting is obviously the CNS dysfunction, but also fatigue, sleepiness, headache, nausea, vomiting, things along those lines. And then obviously unconsciousness, depending on the concentration. So what are we going to do and what should we do, whether we're non-hazmat company rolling up on this or a hazmat company rolling up on this? Well, if we're a non-hazmat company, definitely want to begin evacuation, getting a perimeter set up. Okay. If you don't have a NIOSH guide on your vehicle or you don't have it downloaded on your phone, but you do have the ERG, the emergency response guidebook, you can go to the green section after you've determined what chemical it is, the toluene, for example, and you can set up your perimeters that way using the green section of that book. But if you have the NIOSH guide, definitely go into the NIOSH guide, or if you have the Wiser app on your phone or a tablet in your, your fire engine or ladder truck or hazmat truck, get that out, and then you can start getting your perimeters set up. So back to the non-hazmat company showing up first. Uh, another thing, too, that you can relay is it's, it's more of like information and recon in a way. So if you see placards on a building or containers with placards on them or large, large bulk storage containers, like at a petroleum facility, look at it, determine it, read it, read the numbers, look at the placard, go into your phone, go into your books if you have them on your truck. And what you find out through that just recon, that investigative work, relayed over the radio because of hazmats on the way and hazmats 20, 30 minutes away, well, at least they can get that information over the radio to them and they can do their research. So when they show up, they already have kind of a game plan going and they're going to get everybody together and say, this is what we need done and this is how we're going to get it done. And obviously when we're dealing with this stuff, we should have a plan A, B, C, and D, you know, because plan A and B go down the toilet. Let's have the other two plans ready to go. And then we might even have to have a plan E or an F or whatever. You could have the whole alphabet as a plan. But the point is you're ready for the unexpected. And that's the, the good thing about showing up and kind of just taking a step back, looking at things and going from there. If there is active fire present, then firefighting operations need to be implemented. And with this particular chemical, we want to get a fog nozzle on it with alcohol-resistant foam. So if you happen to have that on your truck, you have a foam tank or you have to batch mix it, definitely do it. But, you know, the main reason we're here is obviously there's either a leak that we got called out to, an odor because of a leak, or there's an active fire involving this chemical. We're not saying go right in there and put the fire out. No, but if you have to keep it in check, until the hazmat team can get there, or if there's a leaking pipe and that's where the fire is, let's keep the fire in check, but we have to make sure that we can get that leak stopped before we completely extinguish it. So that's some things to consider, especially with these type of chemicals. The other thing too is if you have a dry chem extinguisher or a CO2 extinguisher, you can have that available too. So that's another option for you, but just be careful, especially on fixed facilities with containers that are on fire, 
or if they're bulging or something like that. We got to just kind of, like I said, take a step back and look at what's going on. All right. Don't get the tunnel vision of, hey, there's a little fire there. Let's run over there and do it. What's the bigger picture, though? Why is that little fire there? Because the chemical is getting expansive and it's leaking out. And that's why that little fire's there. But at any moment, that tank's going to fail because of whatever's going on. Anyway, and that could be for any other chemical. You know, it doesn't have to be toluene, obviously. It could be anything else. So I, I digress, I know. But uh, anyway, I just want to make sure everybody who's listening to this is absolutely safe and kind of gets a game plan going for no matter what you're going to hazmat-wise. Hazmat team objectives. They show up now. If hot and warm zones haven't been established by the first arriving non-hazmat team, for example, then hazmat team has to get that established, okay? We need to begin our air and flammability monitoring. You want to make sure that, especially if you're going down range, that we have decon set up, all right? So whether it's technical decon, you might have the uh, non-hazmat company getting decon lines set up and, and kind of directing them. The other thing too is if it's a major, large-scale facility, we should probably be getting another hazmat team rolling right away too. Maybe even a total of three hazmat teams showing up because of the extensive size of the incident that it can grow to. So things to think about too. If you're going downrange and it's a leak at this time, obviously we're going to be in full bunker gear, SCBA, because our concern here is not the corrosive aspect of it because toluene is not corrosive like, say, chlorine or ammonia. Uh, anhydrous ammonia, but we're worried about the flammability aspect of it. So that's why we need to be in full bunker gear, fire gloves, everything. The other thing too is obviously respiratory protection, full respiratory protection, SCBA, because of what I just read off to you, the symptoms if you're exposed to a toluene vapor. You can use plugs, sleeves, plug and dike, anything like that for leak control. But if you need to store your stuff, your equipment that you use because it is contaminated, then obviously you should have some overpack drums uh, handy so you can kind of pack everything away and get it cleaned up or dispose of it properly. The other thing too is if there is active fire, just like we kind of mentioned before, we want to make sure that we have a fog nozzle. We have we want to make sure we have a, a secured water supply, especially if this is a, a large fire at a very, very large facility. Make sure you have that secured water supply. You might need a couple different water supplies and, and engine companies that or even water tenders, depending on the size and the magnitude of where you're at. And if you don't have any kind of urban water system with hydrants, if you're out in the rural area, then you're going to obviously need to do a water shuttling operation. So you're going to need multiple engines, multiple water tenders and drafting tanks and whatnot. So it's things to consider. But aside from that, obviously, if we're doing a fog nozzle for firefighting operations, well, we need a fog nozzle to properly aerate foam. And we need that alcohol resistant type foam and dry cam, CO2 extinguishment. It can be used as well if it's available. We want to use water to cool unopened containers as well. So again, thinking of the blevy kind of aspect of things, if we're dealing with a propane tank or anything like that, same kind of concept here with cooling it, because we don't want that tank to fail, because a lot of times the tank will fail at the weakest point, which is weld points, all right? So if it's a welded tank, that's the uh, path of least resistance, in it, that expansion of that chemical, especially if with direct flame impingement, is going to happen, all right? So we kind of talked about hazmat, non-hazmat companies showing up, and then hazmat teams showing up. And what are some of the objectives? And again, the sky's the limit on coming up with the plan and whatnot. So what I kind of said was just examples. It's not the end-all be-all, obviously. So if you thought of something else while listening to this, fantastic. And if you, if you want to share it with me, so I left it out, definitely send a message to me on Facebook so I can you know learn from my, our listeners and I can include it in the next time I do maybe a follow-up on a toluene hazmatician uh, chronicle episode. But to go into a little more information about the chemical itself, because we already talked about the chemical formula, 
but the UN number for toluene is 1294. The molecular weight is 92.139. So that tells you right off the bat that it's heavier than air because why? Molecular weight of air is 29. Anything less than 29, it'll rise. Anything greater than 29, it'll sink. So obviously 92.139 is heavier than air. So it's going to be hanging around at your feet, basically. The IDLH is 500 parts per million. So right there, it tells you it's deadly at that concentration, okay? Hence why we need to do air monitoring. And one thing that they found in the NIOSH report is, and they recommended for the company is, one, the company had no confined space procedures for these tanks. Two, they did, do, they did not do any air monitoring. Three, they didn't have any kind of proper training for the self-contained breathing apparatus. They just went into town and rented it from a store and kind of said, hey, here's a crash course on how to use it. So a lot of things added up to while that, why that worker went in, how come that worker kind of succumbed to their injuries of the inhalation hazard and then the fire department coming in? And it was just that big ripple effect that I kind of mentioned before with tragic results, unfortunately. The LEL is 1.1% and the UEL is 7.1%. and has a very, very low flash point toluene. So that just tells you right there that it's a very nasty flammable. The flash point is 40 degrees Fahrenheit, just to give you an example of why it's a very low flash point. And the solubility, it is insoluble in water. And the classification for it is an aromatic hydrocarbon, and it's a flammable liquid. And it's nonpolar, water immiscible, and noxious. So right there, it tells you it's going to float on water because it's hydrocarbon. It's very noxious because of the smell, because it has a distinct smell to it. And it can overcome you if you're not wearing proper respiratory protection. The other thing, too, is if you're ever looking at a 704 placard on the building that you're going to, Obviously, the 704 placard just tells you a few things. It tells you health, flammability, reactivity, and any special notes. And that's the white part on the very bottom of that diamond. If you're going up to it, to this building, and you see a 704 placard, and you don't have any idea that toluene's in there, then the 704 placard for this particular chemical is a 2 in health. It's a 3 in flammability. It's a 0 in reactivity. And there's no special notes in the white section of that diamond. So just some things to consider, okay? And remember, the UN number is 1294, and it's going to be a flammable liquid placard, which is red with the little flame above the UN number. Out of the nine chemical classifications, it's a class three. Hopefully that we uh, expanded our knowledge on this particular chemical. We did go over the um, case study. We didn't go into it super in-depth, but I kind of just did like a little synopsis of the whole situation. Anytime that there's a firefighter fatality or injury or a civilian injury, it's a bad day for everybody and it's a bad day for the fire service. But what we can take out of it is we can we can learn from it. And NIOSH reports are a great tool to learn from. And it's just a horrible thing to have to learn because of somebody giving their life in the line of duty for it. But in the end, it's something that we can all learn from, whether we're sitting at the table with our crew and we just, and we just sit down, we just talk about it. You know, and it, and it kind of puts things in perspective of, yes, we've made drastic improvements in the fire service with tactics and safety equipment, things like that. But at the end of the day, this is still an inherently dangerous job that we picked to do. But this is the best job in the world in my book. I wouldn't I would, couldn't find myself doing anything else. This is the best job. And I hope everybody who listens to this and who's our followers feels the same way. So thank you very much for your time. We'll be coming up with some new ideas for some future episodes. Feel free to write into us. If you have any questions about certain chemicals or anything hazmat related, definitely write into us because we'd love to hear from you. And we 
are looking into maybe starting a new thing at the end of the episodes, whether it's the Fire Department University podcast or Hasmatistic Chronicles, is reading questions that our followers and our listeners write into about a certain topic of hazmat or fire department. So uh, we'd love to hear from you, but thank you again for your time and we'll see you on the next Hazmatician Chronicle episode. Take care.